the difference between police unions and other unions is the ways in which they have become political and the kinds of fights they have allegedly on behalf of rank and file officers. So a teacher's union never argues, or almost never argues, that a teacher was justified for killing a student. But that is a major role that police unions play. In 2014, 18-year-old Michael Brown was killed by police officer Darren Wilson of the Ferguson Police Department, which is basically in St. Louis. Protests erupted, and at the time, it really felt like this tragedy would be the one that would result in some kind of reckoning, some kind of real substantive change. Right now, in St. Louis, as I'm recording this, the St. Louis Police Association, one of the local police unions, is in collective bargaining with their employer, the city. And that's super important, because police unions are, to an extent, responsible for the kind of policing that we have in America. They're an immensely powerful force in local politics, from New York to Los Angeles to St. Louis. And that's what we're getting into in this episode. So, pardon my grammar, but... Who is Police Unions? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we look at power through the stories of people who have it. Today, we're looking at police unions, which are, yes, not a person. And to do that, we're going to St. Louis. But really, we could have picked just about any major United States city, or even a smaller city. But we wanted to go to St. Louis, because it's been almost seven years since Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, and change takes time. We wanted to get a sense of where things are now, and specifically where things are now when it comes to accountability. Because in Michael Brown's story, part of what matters is accountability, or lack thereof. And that is where police unions come in. To start, I wanted to talk to somebody who'd actually been a police officer. This is recently retired former Sergeant Heather Taylor. My name is Heather Taylor. I'm a retired St. Louis Metropolitan Police Officer. I retired as a detective sergeant from SLMPD September of 2020. So very recently retired. Looking back, why did she want to become a police officer in the first place? It's not exactly the world's easiest job. My goodness, I became an officer. Uh, I have a, my aunt was murdered by a deputy marshal when I was a, gosh, a freshman, or maybe I was a sophomore, I can't remember, in college. And I remember just being so angry about it, about him receiving three years for her murder. He, he shot her in the head. He shot my aunt in the head, and our aunt was kind of like, you know, she was this person that had this strong personality. She was a fighter. Uh, she worked hard. She was a mother. Uh, she was a daughter. You know, she was all these things, and it devastated our family. And he wasn't really held accountable for what he did because he was in law enforcement. And I also had a brother who, at the time, he was uh, 15. Uh, he murdered someone. And my mother had to essentially hold him down for law enforcement to arrest him um, and put him in a system that she didn't trust. None of us trusted. And I remember thinking about the person that he killed and wanting to help victims of crime. And this is my brother. I love my brother. He was 
essentially my only friend at a young age and growing up and he was taken from me, but he did something that made me very angry, uh, even though I loved him, but I was angry for the family that, you know, he took this person away from that family and he had no right to do that. And just, you know, my early experiences with accountability came from my family and my early experiences, they involve law enforcement, some not so good and some not so bad. It just was something that I was always wanting to do. And that's why, that's why I became one. Sergeant Taylor had an impressive career on the force and was herself the leader of a local police association. At the time of my retirement, I was uh, over the night watch homicide section uh, where I supervised homicide scenes. And from there, I was also a police association president of the Ethical Society of Police, which was founded in St. Louis, Missouri in 1972. St. Louis has not only the St. Louis Police Officers Association, but also the Ethical Society of Police. In case you were wondering, yes, unions and associations are basically the same thing. One notable difference. Some of these associations have bargaining power which means they negotiate their contracts with their employer. Others, like the Ethical Society of Police, which is the organization that Heather Taylor led, do not have that power. So why does St. Louis have these two distinct organizations? In St. Louis, there's this dynamic, really strange dynamic, but reality that is often referred to as a white police association, the black police association. The black police association is the Ethical Society of Police comprised mostly of African-American members. And the St. Louis Police Officers Association is comprised of all officers, but mostly white male officers are part of the police association. And so in the police academy, they both came in, gave, gave their spiel. And I felt comfortable with the Ethical Society of Police. And we were told to join both. And that's what I did. I joined both. Um, But I knew when they said, the ethical society said, you're going to need, you're going to need us. I knew that I would need the ethical society of police, that I had to be a part of this organization because, you know, even though they told us to join both, I didn't feel that connection with the St. Louis Police Officers Association. Wow. It's almost like St. Louis having two police unions says something about America. We'll get back to Sergeant Taylor, but... What even is a police union in the first place? A uh, police department obviously is made up of individual police officers. Um, most police departments are very, very small, right? 75% of the 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the United States are 25 officers or fewer. And there's 1,000 departments that are just one dude. And it's always a dude. But in the, the, the cities that are larger... <laughs> We get a sense there's enough officers that they represent a real labor force. And so police unions, some people would just say police associations, but we can get into that later. Police unions are supposed to to represent the labor interests of law enforcement, just like a teacher's union um, or a, a sanitation union or any other kind of union. That's Philip Atiba Goff, who you heard at the top of the episode. Unions represent workers who collectively bargain things like higher wages, better insurance, workplace safety. Unions got us the 40-hour work week and weekends. Weekends are pretty cool. 
But, like we talked about at the top of the episode, cops are workers who carry guns and can use them. And that makes police unions a little different than most other unions. So if officers get into trouble for shooting somebody, it's the union's job to say that shooting wasn't the officer's fault or the officer didn't do anything wrong. That sets you apart. And it goes beyond coming to the defense of officers who've been involved in serious incidents. A 2017 Reuters examination of 82 police union contracts nationwide, yes, that included the St. Louis contract, found that a majority of these contracts stipulated that police departments erase disciplinary records, for example, and many set limits for how long a citizen has to file a complaint against an officer. All stuff that takes away from police officer accountability. How are police unions negotiating for these favorable terms in their contracts? Well, it involves one of my favorite things. Money in politics, which, to be fair, is something that unions generally are involved in. Historically, police unions haven't gotten together with other labor unions to fight for unified labor rights. They've benefited from it, but they haven't fought in favor of it. And what that's allowed them to do is they get a lot of money from a lot of folks who think police, they run towards danger, they're brave, they keep us safe, right? So they get a lot of money and they use that towards helping elect mayors, city councils, um, state reps, governors who are sympathetic to their interests. Right? And because of that role in getting politicians into places where they can regulate law enforcement in a way that law enforcement finds favorable, there is this cycle of bad outcomes for vulnerable communities that don't have as much say in who gets elected. You have elected representatives who are that the police unions help to select and those elected representatives then feel an obligation to give back to those police unions. So unions play this unique role in the ecosystem of labor, as well as the ecosystem of local politics. They fund the things that are best, sometimes for the worst officers, and they're in the way of, of changes from the most vulnerable folks who have the least political voice. Which gets us back to where we started how police unions influence the type of policing that is practiced in places all across the country, like St. Louis. I want to bring in another voice. My name is Stephen Russian. I'm a law professor at Loyola University, Chicago, where I teach criminal law, evidence, and police accountability. And one of my specialties is on uh, the regulation of policing and police unions and related topics. Oh, nice. So police officers were not widely unionized. They weren't widely members of unions until like the mid to late 20th century. But today, even as union power has diminished in a lot of other sectors, uh, police departments and police officers remain more unionized in many other professions. Some estimates today say that somewhere around two thirds or thereabouts of uh, local police officers are members of unions. And these unions typically have power under state statutes. So state law will say, you know, those individuals who are members of a union representing police officers had the ability to negotiate for these types of things, uh, to basically meet with management and to negotiate generally behind closed doors about wages, about benefits, and then about other terms or conditions of employment. And it's that last part, that terms and conditions of employment, that has been interpreted in a lot of places to give police unions the authority to negotiate, not just you know how much money they make, vacation time, 
things like that. But it also gives them the power in a lot of places to negotiate with management, which is, you know, mayor, city manager, city councils, uh, to negotiate about things like discipline, like oversight, like accountability, how we can investigate them, when we can fire them, what types of appellate routes they get after we fire them. Um, and that's, you know, where me and others have written um, about whether or not some of the deals that local governments have reached with police unions uh, represent a good balance or whether they in some cases represent too much of a giveaway to police officers. This is where those vulnerable folks who have the least political power come in. So what a lot of folks don't realize is we're not a nation of one police department. We're a nation of 18,000 state and local agencies all across the country. And historically, the power to regulate those agencies has fallen almost entirely upon local governments. So that meant that police departments were vastly different from one place to another. So whenever it came to regulating these agencies all across the country, um, the federal government in particular has only had a handful of tools that they've been able to use to try to basically incentivize reform. So we have tools like the exclusionary rule. That's a judicially created tool that allows courts to deny the admission of evidence in criminal cases uh, whenever the evidence was obtained in an unlawful or unconstitutional way. Um, so imagine a police officer who conducts a search without a warrant, that evidence may be excluded by a court. And the theory goes, if you do that, you can discourage police officers from having an incentive to engage in those unlawful searches in the future. So the exclusionary rule is one tool we had. We've also historically had um, more recently civil rights litigation where a private person could file a lawsuit against um, a police officer or more recently a police department that was accused of violating their constitutional rights. They could then get monetary kind of compensation uh, to make them whole for the violation that they suffered. And then we had some other kind of tools more recently, things like structural reform litigation. That's basically where the Department of Justice conducts an investigation of agencies that they view as highly problematic and then try to use the court system and consent decree mandates to basically force those agencies to adopt a bunch of policies. Um, but the big driving point that I was trying to emphasize there is historically we have not really been able to force local agencies in large numbers to do things. We've basically had to use a bunch of imperfect tools to try to incentivize them to change their behavior and hope that enough of them change their behavior that it begins to change the institution of policing as a whole. The federal government really can't do much about policing. It all takes place at the local level. It's mostly carrot and not a lot of stick. And that's where contracts come in. So a lot of what's in a police union contract looks a lot like what you would expect to find in other fields. Um, so, you know, they negotiate things like uh, their hours, their scheduling. They negotiate things like how much they get paid, health care, health care benefits. And just to be very clear, like whenever people take some issue with the link between uh, police union contracts and accountability, I don't think many folks are worried about any of that stuff. Um, what I and others, I think, are a little bit more worried about are whenever police officers negotiate in their contracts for things like limitations upon civilian oversight, requirements in some jurisdictions that police officers get to hear and make decisions about 
the veracity of civilian complaints themselves rather than having that authority vested, say, in civilian oversight entities. Uh, whenever you have contracts that say that before you can interview an officer accused of professional misconduct, you got to give that officer, say, 24, 48 hours or even longer of notice which could potentially give them the ability to coordinate stories to deflect responsibility. Some contracts require that officers are given access to some, or in some cases, all evidence against them before you can conduct that interview or that interrogation. Uh, many contracts require that police officers um, have their disciplinary records uh, purged after set periods of time, and that can make it hard for us to determine whether or not officers are engaged in patterns of misconduct that may require intervention and additional oversight. Um, a number of contracts put time limits upon the investigation um, so that if a, a civilian files a complaint too long after the allegation happened um, or the investigation is simply not complete quickly enough, that we can't punish the officer. And very commonly, uh, collective bargaining agreements require that even after a city manager or a mayor or a police chief hands down a disciplinary sentence, say they you know, fire an officer or suspend an officer for some type of serious misconduct, that that decision is not final. And instead, it gets effectively, in many cases, relitigated and presented to a third-party arbitrator who is vested with ultimate authority to, in many cases, overrule or change the decision made by city leaders. So, you know, it's not to say that police officers shouldn't have some role in collectively trying to influence you know, the policies that impact their day-to-day -day lives. But I think the concern that I and some others have expressed is that it really does appear that in some cases, police unions and local city leaders are making bad deals. And the people who pay for those bad deals are the residents of those cities. Um, so we've got to be asking ourselves, you know, are these deals that we're happy with? And if they are bad deals, why are we agreeing to these terms? Law enforcement has a monopoly on the use of force in our society. And police misconduct that undermines public confidence in the justness of that arrangement is something we should all be concerned about. The question should be, given the potential harms posed by police officer misconduct, kind of the, the social consequences of police misconduct, why would city leaders grant these types of protections? And are they the kind of protections that we're comfortable with our leadership and cities and counties across the country granting to police officers? It's not something that should be unexpected. Um, instead, I think it's just a question of, do we believe that the collective bargaining process when it comes to policing will consistently lead to these types of outcomes? And then how can we set up the process so that officers are given fair due process protections and are given a voice in the development of internal policy without conceding too much in a way that can impede accountability? To me, those are the questions that we should be asking and trying to hold our city leaders accountable if we think they have agreed to bad deals. But it isn't just about holding elected officials accountable. We're going back to St. Louis after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. 
Today, we're looking at police unions and the impact police unions have on how policing is practiced in places like St. Louis. My name is Blake Strode, and I am the executive director of Arch City Defenders. Um, We are a holistic legal advocacy organization in St. Louis, Missouri. Strode grew up in St. Louis, and like many who joined the glamorous ranks of public service, he dreamed of creating a better tomorrow. Today. I went to law school with sort of lofty ideals about how lawyers could do good in society and, and uh, play an active role in the fight for justice. And um, frankly, was somewhat disillusioned by a lot of my law school experiences that felt very disconnected from everyday people. And then as I was going into my third year, literally actually a couple of days before I left home here in St. Louis, um, sort of headed back to the third year of law school, Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And um, I watched, like like most of the country, I watched that play out in news and and on um, television screens and um, online reporting and talking to people back home. Uh, And it became very clear to me that I wanted to come back home to do this work in in the region that had produced me and in a place where I really, I think, was only beginning to understand how the the sort of injustices that I was so passionate about were were so stark here uh, and came to, to sort of place some of my own experiences growing up here in the context of many of the the issues, legal and social issues that I was learning more and more about. If you're not from the area, August 9th, 2014 could have been the first time you heard about Ferguson, Missouri. So I think people should understand that we are at a real inflection point in the St. Louis region. And the Ferguson uprising, I think, really was a a wake-up call for much of the world. And certainly here in St. Louis, it uh, it was the beginning of something, not the end. And it revived, I think, a spirit of resistance and critique and, and grassroots uprising that had been dormant, I think, in this region for some time. And so we're, we're in a moment in which there is both real energy and interest and passion and also increasingly real infrastructure to put forth a transformative vision for St. Louis that is is no longer relying on the same old systems of social and racial control that have set the agenda in St. Louis for so long that have been focused on divesting from certain places and then over-policing those those very same communities, over-incarcerating those very same communities, and instead thinking about how we can resource our communities differently to address problems, to respond to harm, to prevent harm, and and really embracing a kind of root cause analysis of the problems that we face. I think it's really fitting that the entry point for a lot of that was actually around state violence, was around this particular young man, Michael Brown Jr., whose body lay on the pavement for hours after he was killed by a Ferguson police officer. And, and his story and his family's story um, and his community's story came to represent so much more than that. Remember how Stephen Russian talked about bad deals just a few minutes ago? Part of that involves process. 
We have for a very long time had that process, that collective bargaining process taking place completely out of sight from the general public, out of sight even from, from most elected representatives in the city of St. Louis. And that speaks, I think, to this way in which a, a relatively small number of individuals have been making massive decisions that impact all of us and all of our communities and, and impact marginalized communities more than others. And so one of the, the efforts that we and, and a number of others have been undertaking in, in recent weeks and months is to really build pressure to have a more transparent process around what, what that negotiation looks like, what the terms of it are, and to really begin to set the stage for divesting from police as a response to everything and instead looking at alternative ways that we can that we can meet our needs as a community we have uh, a very politicized you know i think police and police unions are politicized everywhere here in st louis it is particularly politicized along racial lines we have the the larger in the city st louis police officers association which is the the larger police union. And then we have a black police union, the Ethical Society of Police. And that, that in itself developed out of racist treatment within the department and racist policing practices over time. And the SLPOA has really come to be known through, uh, primarily through its business manager, who's a sort of infamous presence in St. Louis, Jeff Rorta, as someone who is as a group that is led by someone that's made repeatedly racist statements um, without shame over and over again, and as a group that acts in ways that are deeply harmful to black people in this region. And so it's an opportunity to, to have real accountability in this process around negotiating the police contract and to, to demystify the process and make it more open and transparent. And I think we have a long way to go to get there um, and are not at all there yet. But the fact that we are, we are at least having some, some public dialogue about the harms of having these negotiations play out behind closed doors is a testament to the ways in which people have been educating themselves about these various processes and institutions and how they intersect. Blake Strode mentioned a name, Jeff Rorda. He's currently the business manager for the St. Louis Police Officers Association. But wait, Jeff Rorda isn't the police chief. A woman named Mary Barton is. Why are we talking about Jeff Rorda? Here's Philip Atibagoff. So if you know that there's going to be a union for the entire time you're in a department, but that the chief is only going to be there for a couple of years in all likelihood, you might say, you know, the union can drag out a, a piece of litigation um, they can, you know, protect me for long enough. I'm just going to wait this person out. So you could get a progressive chief or a progressive sheriff who wants to come in and make a lot of changes. But if the union's power isn't put into check in some kind of way, or if the union isn't supportive of these changes, you're getting a lot of folks inside a department that don't have to do what the chief says. They don't have to care. They don't have to believe. They don't have to buy in at all. So imagine if you're at your job and the boss comes in and says, you know, today we're making cars a different way. You're going to make them from the back to the front instead of from the front to the back. Everybody looks around and says, this person's out in a couple of years. We're just going to keep making it the way that we want to make it. It's not really a functional organization. 
can lead to low morale from the people who want to do the right thing and make the changes, right? And can lead to a kind of arrogance and a sense of impunity from the people who are resistant to it. That's part of how we can't get the kinds of changes we want to get inside of law enforcement is they're not set up to be adaptive in response to executive leadership that's going out quickly and union leadership that's going out slowly. Here's Stephen Russian. My dad was a police chief. This is actually how I got interested in policing. So I've um, been exposed to the reality of the short term that so many police chiefs serve and thought a lot about how that impacts policy, right? So, you know, a couple things I'll say. First thing that I will say is because police chiefs serve such a short period of time, that can lead to kind of inconsistency from one one police chief administration to another and an inability to kind of have one uniting consistent goal or consistent goal across administration. So, uh, yeah, I think that that makes reform even more difficult. Um, it makes it difficult for, in some cases, police chiefs to be incentivized to make hard choices where the payoff may take many years and where they personally may not see the benefits of uh, hard-fought reforms that they're putting into place. Who's really in charge is one thing. Another thing is how the people who are in charge may differ from those they purportedly represent. There's been some stories on this by some really great reporters who have looked at the racial breakdown and age breakdown and others of police leadership or a police union leadership across the country. And I think the general take-home has been, it seems as if while the profession of policing is uh, not super diverse, but is increasingly a little bit more diverse. And, you know, we have a, at least a, a decent amount of women in the profession now across the country, around 13% or so of the of police officers at the state and local level are women, that police union leadership is overwhelmingly white and male. And it doesn't always represent the political leanings or the viewpoints of a significant number of officers across the country. So, it, it, it seems to me something worth more exploration is the extent to which there's a mismatch between the leadership of police unions that are driving a lot of these policy decisions and then the actual rank and file officers who may look and feel a lot differently than the union leadership themselves. According to The Washington Post, women made up 12.6% of all police officers nationwide in 2018. In 2020, according to The Marshall Project, quote, of the 15 largest departments in which a majority of officers are people of color, only one, Memphis, has a union leader who is black. Another in Honolulu is led by an Asian Pacific Islander, and the union president of the Miami Police Department is white Hispanic. About four-fifths of the Miami-Dade Police Department's officers who patrol the county surrounding Miami are people of color, but the head of their union is white." End quote. That is not the case in St. Louis, where, as of June 2020, White officers were 66% of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Black officers, 30%. And a category called Other Unknown Races is 4%. I asked Heather Taylor for her thoughts about Jeff Rorda, the longtime face of the St. Louis Police Officers Association. Oh, Jeff Rorda. Uh, he is the business manager, uh, the business manager of the St. Louis Police Officers Association. He's their spokesperson, the person that they call on um, to harass people in the community. He's tried to harass me, uh, but, you know, I, I fight. So <laughs> he's tried to, to come at me, but I fight. So he pre they pretty much leave me alone. 
Earlier in the episode, I talked about how St. Louis is currently negotiating its police union contract. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quoting St. Louis Police Officers Association leader and mascot Jeff Rorda, where he compared community input on police contracts to buying a house. Quote, The next-door neighbors are free to talk to the parties to the contract, but they don't get to negotiate the terms. There are a thousand other ways for activists to influence public policy through political activity. Union contracts are not the place for that. End quote. I wondered if Heather Taylor had anything to say about that. He's nuts. Uh, so absolutely. The last that I checked, we work for the people. And so you want to negotiate this contract that allows officers to get away with unthinkable uh, misconduct at times that will... Those people that they're mistreating are your community, generally your community. So you don't want them to have a say-so in seeing that contract. It's uh, why? Why why wouldn't you? If your contract is above board, most people are for unions. Unions are necessary. I'm a union person. I believe in unions. But I don't believe in unions that hide and allow corruption to occur. Here's Blake Strode of Arch City Defenders. You know, I do think there's a sort of a private market approach to police and policing that that views policing actually as an extension of capital, as an extension of private property rights, um, and that the police really exist to serve those private property rights. So it's sort of ironic to me that that the head of the SLPOA would make that analogy. Um, It is is wrong on every level, of course. Um, Police present themselves to be a public good. That's not how I would describe them, but they at least present themselves as that way. Undoubtedly, they are a public institution. Um, They are paid by our taxpayer dollars. They purport to serve the public, all of us. Um, And so it's not at all a sort of private negotiation between two private parties. It's exactly the opposite. It's two public entities negotiating with each other. And that should be done publicly. That should be done in the light of day. And we all have a stake in the terms of that negotiation and the outcomes of that negotiation. Um, and, And it's precisely the reason that we and many of our partners have been pushing to say, you know, this what we've developed as modern policing um, writ large and certainly in this region doesn't serve our interests in any way. And this idea that, uh, that a police union can go behind closed doors with a few city officials and hammer out plans that will dictate how all of us will be treated when stopped by police, for example. What will happen if we make a complaint when a police officer brutalizes us or mistreats us or harasses us? That that, that system doesn't actually work for us. And so what we need to do is begin the process of seriously divesting from that system, of um, removing the resources, removing the power, ensuring accountability, and instead building up the, the kinds of systems and structures and institutions that will actually support our communities and, and our needs. So when it comes to local politics, who is the most powerful? The mayor, the police chief, or the head of the local police union? Here's Philip Atiba Goff. So when they teach leadership to most police executives, they teach leadership that they've got a three-legged stool. So if you're a chief and you want to stay a chief, you gotta, you're sitting on a three-legged stool. One of the legs is the city leadership, the mayor, the city council, the police commission, whoever's in charge of hiring and firing. Another leg is the public. 
right? Literally, the people who live in your city. And the third leg is the union. You're also told, not just that you have three legs, but one of those legs is going to be broken at all times. So you got to balance on two legs, right? If you ever lose two at the same time, it's time for you to get out because you're about to get fired. So you can have the mayor and the union, and it doesn't matter if the community doesn't like you. If you got the community and the union, the mayor can't get rid of you, right? If you got the community and the mayor, union can't do much to you. But it's always a precarious place. So you ask for who has the most power, and it really depends. For everybody who's listening to this, I encourage you, go and find out who is in charge of hiring and firing your local law enforcement. Because sometimes it's the mayor, but sometimes the mayor has no direct responsibilities in that. In fact, in Minneapolis, they tried to pass a charter amendment that said the mayor can no longer select the police chief. Right, So it really depends both on how the city is set up, or the county, or wherever area you live, and the prevailing power. Because sometimes it's the person that owns the, the mill, or the factory, or the, the big corporation that has the most power. Because they're able to do a lot politically for whoever's elected, to buy ads, to, to move the crowds of the, of the community, and even to work with the union. So power is multi-determinate, and there's no one right answer to that in every city. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is... Today we're looking at police unions, and at this point in the episode, you might be like, wow, police unions seem pretty bad. But it's more complicated than that. Here's Philip Atiba Goff. So, it may be controversial, I don't think we should have a problem with the concept of police unions, right? I do think that police work is work. I do think that um, rank-and-file officers, as often as I hear chiefs complaining about unions, I hear rank-and-file officers complaining about command staff. Right? Like the labor conditions are difficult. They're rough. Oftentimes in many cities, they're wildly underpaid. It makes it difficult to earn a living where your job is to put yourself between residents and danger. I don't think that we should have a problem with the concept of unions at all. I think that there's a perverse incentive to union leadership that's a problem, and there's a kind of political engagement that's a problem. The perverse incentive, what I mean by this is, let's say I'm, I'm law enforcement. All right, I'm an officer, and I'm about to vote between two candidates. One candidate says, I think the worst thing that can happen to us is that we have bad officers run amok, ruining our name. So I'm going to make sure that we don't support bad officers doing bad things. I'd rise to my feet. I would applaud that individual. And the second person says, I'm going to make sure no matter what you do, we've got your back. No matter how bad it gets, no matter what they say, no matter what lies and dirt they kick on your name, I'm going to make sure that if you get sued or you're getting investigated, we're going to try do our best to get you off. Now, I might like that person less, but in a police union context, that's the person getting the vote 100 times out of 100. So that's the problem. We've set up unions so that it's okay for someone to say, we're going to protect the worst people in the, in, in the department um, to run the darn union. And the other piece is, I think we should not have a problem with, with police unions who know a good deal about how the law is enforced wanting to have a say in that. 
we should have a problem with them having undue influence on who gets to hold them accountable. Right? If I, if I wanted to commit crimes, one of the greatest privileges I could give myself is picking who decided whether or not I was guilty. Right? So the political engagement needs some separation so that we, the public can trust that law enforcement isn't putting their thumb on the scale um, of how they're going to be held accountable when they do something wrong. The whole idea of laws, the idea of the social contract, that thing that allows us to live together and not just exploit each other all the time, is that they apply fairly. And if the idea is that the police can literally get away with murder, it's difficult for anyone to say they're living by the rule of law. They're living by the rule of law maybe between each other, but when the state gets involved, they're living in fear. That's the problem with the way that unions are set up right now. The biggest problem, I'd say. Something you hear a lot from policing activists is defund the police. I wanted to know what Sergeant Heather Taylor had to say about that. There's these talks of, quote unquote, defund the police versus reform the police. But with police unions across the country, with the amount of power they have, is it possible to reform the police with the amount of power police unions have? It, it can happen, but you cannot allow unions to have that level of control over police departments. And a lot of times it, I hear the language, I don't support defund the police. I support reallocating a lot of those resources. You can't have a police department like ours in the city of St. Louis at 60% of your total budget. That's outrageous. When you have 2% going towards your unhoused or your homeless, we call them unhoused here in St. Louis, to your unhoused budget, and you get multiple calls for unhoused that police respond to. How about you fix the problem, remove some of the money that you're spending in law enforcement for um, addressing unhoused and mental health resources and put it in the actual programs. Hire more social workers. If you have 50 openings, why don't you hire 20 social workers to address the real problems that are social problems that are not police matters. So you can have change, but I think it's important for police departments in cities to start defunding unions. You know, that's where it starts. It's the contracts. Those contracts are so damaging uh, to um, the community. They're damaging to diversity. They're damaging in a lot of ways because they have too much say so. They get these unions, they, they negotiate and they have these, these, the language put in there that allows officers to continue um, to get away with so much that is costing millions and millions, built probably billions of dollars in lawsuits around the country collectively. So you have to start defunding these unions, meaning that you take away their power, which is your collective bargaining agreements. The collective bargaining agreements are their power. So you start there and you start eliminating language in there that shouldn't be. It's about negotiation of pay raises and things like that. They shouldn't have a say in things that are not police matters. St. Louis is a big city, but it's not that big. And Sergeant Taylor and Blake Strode know each other. I think Heather is one of the, um, the most courageous people that I've seen, sort of courageous public voices that I've seen in St. Louis and precisely because she does tell hard, uncomfortable truths about, as a police officer, about other police in St. Louis and particularly about the racist ways in which um, policing operates in St. Louis. And I know that she's done that, um, putting herself at, at great 
peril and and doing things and saying things that have been very unpopular among many of the people that she worked with and relied on over the years. So I, I think there is absolutely value in those kinds of um, critical voices existing inside of these systems. I also don't think that's what's going to save us in the end. I think that those are critical voices to understand the, the true ways in which these systems function. And in the end, what we actually need is to turn away from our reliance on policing, on prosecution, on jails, to divest from those systems, yes, to defund those systems and to build something new, to build different kinds of systems of support, to build systems that prevent harm from happening in the first place. And when it does occur, um, to have accountability, to have repair. Um, we don't have that right now. We don't have anything like that. And in the end, what we need is to build that and to end our reliance on those existing systems. So I think there's a way in which we fetishize voices, particularly um, people of color, black people that are police, that are prosecutors, that are judges. Um, we fetishize those voices as if their very existence is going to be what takes us to this promised land. And we know that that's not true. There have always been black faces in high places. You know, we've had a black president of the United States that did not stop black people from getting killed on the streets by police officers. And so we, we've run that experiment, actually, many, many times. It's not to say that has no impact. It is to say that that's not even close to enough. And so we can we can chew gum and walk at the same time. We can support people like Heather Taylor, who are telling us about the abuses that are happening within the police department. And we can say, we look forward to a day when Heather Taylor's doing a different job than that because that department doesn't exist anymore. We can do both of those things. And that's what we're trying to do um, in our work with, with so many of our partners and others here in St. Louis. So what does all of this mean? I want to get back to police unions specifically. Here's Stephen Russian. Speaking as a lawyer, the or as someone who trains lawyers for a living as a law professor, the way that I would the way that I explain this to my students frequently is what we say is a negotiable subject or something that should be negotiated as part of a collective bargaining agreement is broad. In many places, it means that police unions can negotiate for a lot of things related to uh, their day to day lives. Um, and it's difficult at times for us to kind of separate the things they're negotiating from, to separate that from what the job of policing in that community looks like and the experience then of the residents within that community. So I think it's fair to say that at minimum, when we define the scope of collective bargaining statutes to be broad enough that it really does begin to include a lot of how we treat officers and the responsibilities of officers and how we can oversee officers and accountability. But yeah, that almost certainly translates into the lived experience of people in that community with police officers. Which gets us to a big question. I asked Philip Atiba Goff whether or not all Americans should view police unions as an anti-democratic force in the United States. So the question uh, is, do police unions in the context of, uh, of uh, multiracial democracy represent an anti-democratic force? 
And I got to say, it's a pretty leading question, but I'm okay to be led there. Um, <laughs> I, I want to be clear. There are union leaders that want to do the right thing for their communities. There are, are union um, members um, that care deeply about racial justice. But unions in the policing world have not aligned themselves with the cause of racial progress historically um, to, to any degree that's worth mentioning. Um, so if you're talking about you know, 287G, if you're talking about uh, bills like SB 1070 or the, the progenitor for that, SB 81 in Utah, which are the papers please bills, the bills that said that if you were, if you quote unquote look like an immigrant, then you have to carry papers proving that you should be here. I mean, it's a papers please law. Law enforcement unions were not just favorable to it, they lobbied hard in favor. Why? Because it gives them more opportunities for gear, for protective equipment, and for off-duty income. Right? For the law enforcement in sheriffs that also is in charge of detentions, it's likely to fill new jails and expand um, so you get new jails. <laughs> so that the, the, the question was... Uh, are unions anti-democratic and a multiracial democracy? And the answer is historically, yeah. Think back to the beginning of the episode. Heather Taylor told us she became a police officer because of personal tragedy. I went into it with the belief that I would go into this department and I would change the way they thought that, hey, if we all just did what was right and we stood up, uh, we could protect victims of violence like my aunt. Uh, we could protect people. Uh, and that was my, my thought process going into it. There isn't an easy answer here. People with worthy motives go into policing, and at a basic level, unions are ultimately about protecting workers. Here's Stephen Russian. I think one thing that is always valuable in these sorts of longer form um, like podcasts and shows is it's easy to have just the like Twitter version of this debate. The Twitter version looks something like this. It says, police unions are bad, abolish police unions, and it points to them as the source of all the problems. And I would just encourage folks listening to realize that like a lot of things, this is more complicated. Um, and we have to be careful in our language because we don't want our justifications for resistance to some of the terms of police collective bargaining agreements and some of the, you know, actually truly offensive comments made by certain police leaders to become vehicles for opposition to collective bargaining rights in other contexts uh, more generally. Um, I think the objection that I and many others have to police unions is not an objection to unionization generally or to collective bargaining rights generally. What I'm objecting to is the concessions that some cities have made in the context of police union contracts, and then a general question about whether or not policing as a very specific profession, whether policing is the kind of profession where it makes sense to have these types of disciplinary issues negotiated via the collective bargaining process. So, you know, I just think it's important to, to kind of keep that perspective in mind. And I, I worry sometimes that occasionally our, I think, justified advocacy against uh, problematic terms or questionable so-called due process terms and police collective bargaining rights can be construed as general opposition to um, 
unionization or general opposition um, to collective bargaining. And the last thing that I'll say, I think that's also important in a story like this is distinguishing between what is a genuinely necessary and important due process protection from arbitrary and capricious discipline. And then what is a protection that goes too far that actually impedes accountability? That's also a matter of kind of personal interpretation. And I would encourage folks who are really interested in this area to look up their own collective bargaining agreements. They change with some frequency. You can often find them online or you can find them via um, open records request, look at your own communities and decide whether or not you think the concessions that we're offering in the context of policing um, represent reasonable due process protections or whether they go too far. Um, and I think that's, again, a point of debate where reasonable people in good faith can disagree. Here's Sergeant Heather Taylor. You have a voice in those police unions. In St. Louis City, the St. Louis Police Officers Association is was considered this juggernaut. And when combined with the Ethical Society of Police and the community, the community did their own review of the collective bargaining agreement. Two different entities that we worked with, that we were able to stop the city from signing that contract last May. They still don't have a contract that's been signed. So you have a voice. I would like for every young person to know, sometimes you're going to work, have to work with those very people that you may not trust. But within those people, there are some who actually care, that actually want to do something, want to end these contracts and how how these unions work. And you have to work together. We're not going to always agree, but when it's for the overall good of the public and officers who are actually about change, you can do it. 18,000 agencies across the country. That means wherever you are, if you care about this, you can be a part of it. On the next episode of Who Is, we're doing something a little different. Stacey Abrams has gotten a lot of credit for, quote, turning Georgia blue. But what happened in Arizona, another normally red state that went for Joe Biden in 2020? Who's the Stacey Abrams of Arizona, if there is one? And what's the real story behind Arizona going blue in 2020? We're going to try to find out next week on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests, Philip Atiba Goff, a professor of African-American studies and psychology at Yale University. Dr. Goff is co-founder of the Center for Policing Equity, CPE. Stephen Russian, a professor of criminal law, evidence and police accountability at Loyola University, Chicago School of Law. In 2020, students voted Russian professor of the year. Congratulations, Stephen. Blake Strode, the executive director of Arch City Defenders, a nonprofit civil rights law firm in St. Louis, Missouri. And retired Sergeant Heather Taylor, a 20-year veteran of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, who spent eight years in homicide. Taylor was previously president of the Ethical Society of Police, a police association in St. Louis. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Jordan Balaber. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. 
At now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Nidhi Krishnan. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe. And hey, why not? Tell your friends. If you have an idea for an episode you want to hear, reach out to me on social media at SNMRRW. But please, stop suggesting Tony Shalhoub. We are not doing an episode on Tony Shalhoub. <laughs>